and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me on episode 54 to talk about a few things. we got some weird stuff in the news. We've got uh, the Sony A7S hack, which Devin already explained to me as a fake, and some other things that we'll be talking about shortly. But first, Devin, what have you been up to, man? Oh, way too much. I've been running around. I've been helping uh, my sister move into a new place. I've been helping... uh, doing a little indie music project uh, for some people in Chicago who are into jazz music and stuff like that in preparation for a live performance that they're doing later. So, um, and then as well as walking venues and planning power and signal and all that kind of stuff for live broadcasts. So that's always fun. Uh, but lots of, lots of work. I haven't had at all any time for rocket league or anything else fun. (laughs) Rocket league, man. Soccer with cars, right? The best way to go. The best way to play soccer. On my end, I've just been working through all the settings required to get this Panasonic LX100 up to snuff for video work. And uh, let me tell you, the menus on Panasonic cameras are not the best. Uh, Definitely nine pages worth of custom settings. That's really fun to go through. And then abbreviations to figure out what the heck each (laughs) one of them means. But... I am posting a guide as I work through this, so look forward to that on DSLRFilmNoob.com. That should help you guys who are working with the LX100 to get it completely set up for video mode, then save that to a custom preset so that you can go back to it easily. And with my guide, it basically eliminates 90% of the complaints people have about the LX100 in video mode, including that cropping problem, uh, as well as autofocus in video mode, which is a hassle. And it even gives you the option to use this shutter button as a start-stop for video recording. So that's going to be a long Uh, write-up. I know a number of you have been complaining immensely that I haven't been writing enough. So I have blocked out several hours each day to work on writing for the site again. Hopefully that will pick back up. But other than that, more editing. I have a conference coming up. I'm shooting some corporate video stuff, doing a couple of interviews, and then I've got another safety video in a high voltage yard because that's fun. Hopefully, my cameras safety. don't burn up. Yeah, uh, you gonna include a safety dance in there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Um, it's actually uh, it's a safety video in a 500 kV substation yard. So uh, last time I shot in one of those yards, uh, my camera got too close to a steel structure and uh needless to say i had to pull insurance on it because <laughs> really yeah it drew an arc and actually uh fried the circuit board on a uh canon 6d so you know wow. be aware of that uh it's a different <laughs> sort of environment uh, i probably should have be careful when around high voltage i think is always good advice yeah, <laughs> whether you're a video maker or not <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely unnerving to be able to draw an arc from a structure with your finger. So, uh, yeah, well worth uh, <laughs> experiencing. I'm excited to do that, but also a little bit fearful of the future. But on that note, <laughs> time for for the news. Time for the news. First up is actually a mistake on my part. I did post this in the show notes, but now I have to retract. Uh, There was a spot on Sony Alpha Rumors that uh, was showing an image of an A7S hacked, possibly running 4K internal recording, which could... And 250 megabit 
or whatever, which is ridiculously high for that hardware. Yeah, that might even be beyond the abilities of the bandwidth for the card bus there. So yeah. I posted this, not even really looking into it as, as much as I should. And Devin, what did you find out, man? Well, I mean, it, it's not like I found it on my own. People were posting responses to this all day. Uh, but it looks like the interface, which many people have been like, well, maybe he is a hacker, but he's definitely not a graphic designer because that's the crappiest interface I've ever seen. Um, they found that exact same like verbatim uh, screenshot from an Android app, which is, um, I guess, for supposed to be for your LG to give you DSLR-like qualities, even to the point where in the video, in the bottom right corner, there's a gray box. And when you look through the, uh, the images for that app, you see that that little corner piece that is gray in the hacked video, quote unquote, is usually where the previous photo goes. Like it shows you the previous photo, which is not something that DSLRs ever do because that's just not a workflow that anyone's ever put in a camera that I've seen. So it's just all these things stacked on top of each other, saying 4K recording, having these abnormal bit rates that probably can't be handled uh, internally by the camera or anything like that makes me think that, yeah, it's really fake. I mean, the movement didn't look quite right, but it's not... It, it's not difficult to say that he couldn't have just held his phone out and did everything you just saw um, and then superimposed that and moved with the video on a camera, if that makes sense. Like, it's it's hard to say because he's just looking at white. There's very little detail in the image to really see if it's attached to the camera. But one way or another, I'm like, uh, I could do this in an afternoon. Like I, I could I could sit here, take a picture of my phone doing this stuff and then cut out my phone screen and paste it on there and do stuff. So or better yet, just record the phone screen and then superimpose it on top of uh, my DSLR and make it look like my DSLR can do all this fancy stuff. Some other people, too, were pointing out that this is the same guy who said something about the Olympus having a 4K hack. And he posted this like two years ago. So it seems to come from the same guy who's known for fakes or something like that. I didn't go that deep into it. As soon as I saw there was an Android app that looked exactly like it. I'm like, well, uh, that kind of speaks for itself. I, I don't know of anyone who would like port Android code when hacking in DSLR. It would seem just easier to just freaking hack the DSLR instead of like, I, you know, because it, it's yeah. Java-based code. That's not going to run because this is firmware-based, you know, uh, programming and whatnot. So it's just one of those things where I'm like, ah, these two just, it's not, it, there's no reason why I'd look that way. So basically the hack's a fake, guys. Uh, if you I'm, see this I'm, posted yeah. anywhere, it's most likely a red flag as to being completely fake. Now, I do want to spend just a second talking about the A7S, which is now down to, looks like $1,800 on Amazon. And I've got a link to that in the show notes. Uh, oh, 1950 right now. Uh, the used yeah, market 1950. is, is 1800 <laughs> I now, you know, I'm, I'm looking at two numbers here because you've got the used price and then the right. regular price. So that means that basically the A7S is kind of filling in that in-between spot that I was hoping they would put the price at for the A7S Mark II, which ended mm -hmm. up being $3,000. Now, do you yeah. think they're going to continue to sell the A7S original because it's so close to the A7S Mark II as that filler space between yeah. their lines? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think they still see that there's a lot of money to be made because – no other brand has come and matched it in terms of low light for uh, mirrorless form factor and everything else they got going on. Even at a stills camera, uh, it's still fantastic. And so considering it is a DSLR and it is a stills camera before it is a video camera, as much as we like to think of video firsthand, uh, tells me that, hey, this um, 
that this still has marketability because the only thing that comes close in low light is, you know, like a, a 5D Mark III or something like that. That's the only thing that comes close. And when you consider that price difference, this still looks, you know, like, hey, do you want a smaller camera? Do you want one that does really nice video as well? Because, you know, it's not like the Mark III had the sharpest video, though it still does shoot great video. Uh, so I think with all that considered, they've got no reason not to sell it because it just it's a great little, hey, you can still have this great low light, this great stills camera. You no, know, it may not be the latest and greatest, but I think it'll still probably go on selling for another year or so. Yeah, I was debating when I saw the A7S Mark II come out as to whether I should sell and upgrade or continue to keep my A7S. And I, I think I'm just going to stick with it because if you look at the A7S Mark II, the, the major difference is internal 4K recording, which you guys have heard me complain about before. Uh, 4K recording on the A7S, it gets too much of the sensor image in there, and you get really grainy images as opposed to 1080p out of that in low light. So the low light performance is reduced significantly recording in 4K. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you're basically getting that image stabilization system. That's good, but... I don't know, for an extra $1,000, or I'd probably end up selling this for like 1700 bucks. You know, I'll just keep mm-hmm. this, because I use it mostly for low light anyway. It's not really the camera I shoot on 100% of the time. You know, it's base ISO 1600, so if it's bright out, I end up taking my GH4 or my uh, Canon 5D Mark III or my 6D out. This is mostly what I use for extreme low light. And in those cases, I'm not going to be, you know, handheld running around crazy anyway. I'm probably going to plan my shot and set everything up and I'm going to be mm-hmm. out in a dark yeah. area. So uh, definitely still a value for me. And I I think really the A7S is going to be uh, continuing value for a lot of people, especially with the price drop. Uh, I still think, yeah, that's still a great price to me. Like all things considered, even though time has marched on or whatever, it's still a super new camera. And it's only like one said, year old, man. Like It's only one year old, and there's pretty much still nothing that can match it except for its successor. Yeah. So to me, the fact that it has this price drop, I go, that's a really good price for that camera now. Well, and the the successor is using the exact same sensor and sensor tech. So there isn't any real upgrade in sensor technology between the A7S and the Mark mm-hmm. II. And now with this price, and I'm guessing on the used market, and now you got me wondering what the price is on eBay <laughs> here. Let me look at the A7S real quick. Exciting radio as I search for the A7S <laughs> on eBay. Yeah, so the price and is listen to us, Google. Uh, new on eBay is 1800 bucks. And there's buy it now for as low as sixteen hundred dollars. So if you're if you're buying like a used Sony A7S, sixteen hundred bucks, that's the price of a seven D Mark II. Way mm-hmm. better low light performance, arguably, and not arguably, like hands down, basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can still put your Canon glass on here. Plus the A7S supports crop mode. So if you have some EFS lenses, you can still use those, no problem. You can use your full frame glass and you can adapt this to pretty much any lens out there because of the flange distance to the sensor. So well, and you said there's that uh Canon adapter that gives you autofocus ability. Mm-hmm. Um there's also people I know who make uh N D filters in that flange distance, so you can pop down NDs without putting an N D on the front of your lenses. Um, so I've seen adapters like that, and so there's it, it gives you a bunch of options as well, not just that you can do a bunch of different lenses, but also what you could have between the lenses and the body. So, I mean, it's it, to me, it's a no-brainer, especially if you're interested in video, uh, considering the video of uh, something like the Canon series DSLRs versus the Sony. 
Now, while we're on Sony cameras here, let's uh, skip ahead a, a little bit to that digital rev video. Uh, basically, they've been comparing the 5DS to the Sony A7R Mark II. Uh, the A7R Mark II is a high megapixel camera. The 5DS is a high megapixel camera. So it's interesting to see how those two kind of stack up against each other if you're looking for that many megapixels in your DSLR or mirrorless body. Uh, I've got a link to this in the show notes, and basically around 6.36, they start doing the side-by-side comparison of uh, these two cameras, images, and so on, and then autofocus. Uh, Even though Sony's bragged about really getting their autofocus up to snuff with uh, Canon cameras, Mm -hmm. Devin, did you watch this? You saw the same thing I did. It's pretty slow, right? Yeah, it's it's something that makes me go, "Ah, I would kind of prefer, you know... Even something like uh, my Nikon D90, I'm like, ah, you know, a traditional DSLR doing what it does best, which is focusing and capturing it in a in a split second. Uh, it still looks like the A7S hasn't jumped to that, which is surprising because maybe it has something to do with the way that the sensor works or the way the sensor's laid out because I've always been impressed with how the GH4 is able to snap focus. If you've got Lumex glass on there, admittedly, like, you know, not Canon adapters or anything like that, but... Uh, the Panasonic GH4 is a mirrorless camera that zooms incredibly fast, which is impressive when you consider it's using algorithms of contrast-based focus rather than like laser distance like your DSLRs do. So I've always been impressed with that, and I'm kind of surprised that Sony still is seems to be sluggish when it comes to uh, focusing, especially during video mode. Yeah, I was trying to remember the exact tech that they're using in Sony's uh, sensor for focusing, but to... I know with Panasonic, they're using a combination of contrast and phase detect. And that combination, That's right, yeah, phase it detect, gives yeah. you uh, twice the speed that you get out of normal mirrorless bodies. I think, if I remember correctly, uh, Sony is using some sort of uh, pixel comparison system where it's taking two pixel sites and using that to determine the focus distance. That sounds like a contrast-based focus system, honestly. Yeah, it <laughs> does. But it's like it's labeled something weird like DHCIPSFD or something weird like that. Sure, because I mean, it's Sony. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they probably put like seven numbers and a digit and a dash in there too just because they're great with labeling. But yep. regardless, whatever they're doing, they're a little bit behind uh, Panasonic. And that's kind of sad too because even like this guy right here, the LX100, the focus on this is amazingly fast. I mean... Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's just like, bam, 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 nails it all the yeah. time, like no problem. And I wish you could get that out of the A7S because this guy is a dog. And even with the new technology that they've added to the a- uh, A7R Mark II and A7S and that entire Mark II series, it's still pretty slow. Uh, for stills, yeah. kind of still want to lean towards... Uh, 5D Mark III, unless uh, I have a very specific Sony application. But Sony's putting in the cool tech, so I don't know. I think next iteration, because they come out with a new freaking camera every year, uh, they'll have Mm -hmm. it nailed down and and everything will be solid. Uh, Until then, what can you do, right? (laughs) Own multiple cameras like DJ does. That's what you can do. (laughs) Oh, my God. So you get the best of everything. Yeah, it's getting out of control here. I'm sitting at a (laughs) a desk with four cameras around me, and uh, that probably represents like five or six grand worth of camera You're an addict. (laughs) You're drowning in cameras. You're an addict. (laughs) I just started selling some stuff off uh, a couple weeks ago because Mm -hmm. I really need to call the herd and really (laughs) specifically keep the things that I actually use. Now, speaking of things I actually use, the... (laughs) Panasonic GH4, which I have right here, 
Uh, I've got a link to this in the show notes as well. Kind of talked about it with Mitch last episode, but I wanted to bring it up with you as well. Devin, did you see the vlog hack for this that's already out? Oh, I mean, of course I did. It only took of course what, a did. couple of days. And <laughs> Well, to be honest, it's not really, really a hack. Uh, it's not really a hack. I mean, a hack makes it sound like somebody with quite a wide berth of knowledge was able to circumvent, inject something, get around something. When really somebody just found out, I mean, obviously somebody who's observant, somebody just found out when they attach their phone to the GH4, they can select Vlog even though they're not licensed to per se. Because at the end of the day, that that update that costs money, I'm sure when you look at the paperwork, that's a license. You're licensing Vlog. So you accessing Vlog without paying for the license is obviously unintended. A lot of people thought maybe it wasn't, but I'm like, no, the fact that you got to use like your phone and go in and do it that way tells me that, yeah, this is a way they didn't intend. What's interesting is that Panasonic isn't making necessarily an update to fix it. And I think they understand that if they were to release a firmware update, that the only thing it did was prevent this from happening no one would download and install it anyway. They so actually kind of did, though. So Did they really? They is there pulled- like a... Yeah, 2. they pulled 2.3 and they put up 2.4 and 2.4 oh, disables okay. the ability to do that. They also updated the app in the App Store to eliminate that. Uh, Interesting. It, it's kind of a fiasco here. And the thing that I kind of got crossways with Mitch about on the last episode, and it's kind of interesting to talk about, is is this really stealing if a company makes a mistake and then releases something and hands it out to the general public and then is like, oh, wait, whoops, we messed up. Let's back up here. Everybody who has this, uh, go ahead and hand it back in. You, you know what I mean? Mitch sure. really kind of thought um, it was a theft, but to me it's more like they handed out a bunch of grab bags at like a concert and they accidentally put you know gold watches in it instead of uh, you know trinkets or whatever. Sure. Um, well, for one thing, I could see how the businessmen would say, well, this is definitely hurting our margins because we were planning on this much income from uh, spending the time and uh, whatever they've invested in it. I, you make a good point, but if you look at the negative, let's say that they released firmware that somehow hurt the camera and damaged it and then asked you to send it in so that they could fix it. They're the ones who are ultimately responsible for what happened with that camera. Uh, then yeah, you'd be like, yeah, I want them to fix it and take care of it. But then when something good happens through this process of serendipity, uh, then you turn around and you're like, no, I want to keep it. I want to keep all my extra features or whatever that you forgot to take out. So, um, uh, for me, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, "Ah, if it really mattered to me and it was really that important to my workflow, um, a hundred bucks is really not asking that much when you really think about it, because it's not like it already had cinema modes and flat modes and ways you could use it. And like I said, the only thing I can find with vlog, I'm not finding like when people show me samples of vlog, I'm suddenly seeing an extra stop and a half of dynamic range. It's not like that. It's just, it fits a profile that people in the industry have been using on Panasonic cameras that allows you to take your GH4 and mix it in with other footage more easily if you shoot with a bunch of Panasonic ENGs or, you know, their prosumer cameras or whatever. So for me, I'm like, uh, it's not important to a workflow. I wouldn't spend the money on it, but everyone keeps heralding it as being like this great big thing. And that's why people are like trying to find a way to get it for free because they think it'll make their camera awesome. And at the end of the day, I mean, like you said earlier before the podcast, you're not a flat guy. Yeah. Um, and even <laughs> though I, even though I shoot pretty flat, like uh, with my uh, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, uh, I'll shoot in film mode, which is just the flat mode it has. And um, with my GH3, I'll shoot in natural or whatever, which is as close as you get to a flat mode with that camera. Even though I shoot flat, 
have having a GH4, and I've used a GH4 a few times. I put it in, you know, one of the flat modes, and I don't worry about it because I know I'm going to sit here and mess with it in post and do all that kind of stuff. Vlog would only be important if you have another camera that has Vlog. Is the fact that the two will pretty much match. That's the nice part of having it, and so that's why I understand. Panasonic didn't feel like they needed to come out with it, but then everyone kept asking for it. They experimented with it. Is there a market? They found, hey, there's probably a market for this. They spent the money to develop it, and now they're charging people for it. And it's one of those where if that's the case, I've already invested enough money in Panasonic that I don't think the upgrade is outrageous. I mean, 50 bucks would be nice considering it's just a profile mode on the camera, and that's the only thing you get. But Still, I can't like harp on them being like, oh, I got this for free. Why are you taking it away from me? Falling into that trap of, hey, it would be nice if it was always cheaper, you know, is is like a never ending story. (laughs) It continues to cycle around. Uh, Honestly, for me, and I'll probably get some email on this, but uh, I think uh, the first thing you watch someone do who shot flat mode is what? They add contrast right away. They like crank up the contrast on it. And what happens when you crank up the contrast? You've basically eliminated any advantage that you would have got out of that extra dynamic range that was available for you. So if you're going to do that, then you're well, kind of like... Well, against, arguing against DJ now, um, the whole point is that you can add contrast where you want it. So the idea is, is you can go into an environment, uh, shoot flat, and then pick, okay, I want my shadows to be at this level and my highlights to be at this level. And even though you're taking away dynamic range in order to get the picture you want, you have more clarity and more uh, choices in that than you would if you didn't shoot flat. That being said, it's not that you couldn't do this stuff without a flat mode. Uh, it's like that big um, Zakudo shoot-off that they had with all the cameras, and they said, look, this GH2 looks as good as an Arri Alexa. It's like, yeah, they spent three hours lighting for the GH2, and they spent like 15 minutes lighting for the Alexa. That's the difference, because the Alexa had all this dynamic range, all these possibilities to stretch the image however they wanted in RAW, and the GH2 just shoved that crap down into an H.264. So they had to work really hard to make it look really good and to be within all the margins, but... That's that's part of it is that, um, uh, it, you know, that's the difference with shooting flat. It, it's like it doesn't gain you really anything you didn't have before. It just gives you some more options in post, which if you're shooting by yourself, half the time um, I'll shoot raw if I know I'm going to do something really creative with it. But like when I did this indie interview thing, I actually slammed both of my cameras into standard profiles. I did a factory reset on my GH3 and shot in standard mode without messing with any of the dials up and down or any of that. And what do you know? I got a great image straight out of the camera without even messing with it because I lit it pretty well. And I'm not going to sit here and like add like, you know, blues to the shadows to make it feel cold and stuff like that. I'm not telling a cinematic story. So it'd be totally different. If I'm shooting a short film, I want a World War II feel to it, or I want this to feel like a horror film or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to spend time in post with my color and being flat is going to give me more options. Uh, But most of the time when I'm shooting, if I'm shooting family or I'm shooting friends or I'm shooting an interview for a client, I don't want to deal with flat mode. I want to deal with adding contrast and messing with saturation and pushing stuff around. I'm like, just give me a standard mode. It's going to look great. I'll tweak it still. You know, I may still go a little too much red here. Pull this back. But I'm not going to sit here and color it for an hour. Well, and if you have it in flat mode, too, you always get that like, this looks kind of bad, you know, because someone's watching on like a field monitor. And if you don't have a LUT installed on it or something, they're like, oh, this doesn't look very good. You know, uh, is this going to look this bad in post? And it's right. like, well, but if you you, you got to go through that dance with the clients and everything, that's yeah. never fun. I actually so, caught myself just switching over to Vivid once in a while, and they're like, "Oh, that looks beautiful. The colors pop." Yeah, and I'm like in the Vivid mode yep. on my camera, just filming this interview. <laughs> yeah, this is great. This is exactly what we want. Oh, okay. 
Right, yeah. And well, and that's why my field monitors too, um, at least the ones I bring out for the clients who like to, um, who I know would like to look over my shoulder and to keep them from looking over my shoulder, I give them their own monitor. On those monitors, I'm usually pumping up saturation anyways, because that always, they feel like that makes it look better. It'll look oversaturated and crappy by my eyes, but to them, they'll be like, oh, it's so lifelike and vivid. Uh, just because, you know, they're the kind of people who are wowed by, uh, you know, the way TVs look on the display shelf. So bringing this back around to the GH4, yes. uh, you can install <laughs> the hack or quote unquote oh, and, hack uh, and the adjustment. Workaround, the workaround, the workaround is not it's not fun. Like it's one of those that if I really wanted this too, I wouldn't have a problem paying for it instead of doing this workaround. I mean, I, I grew up in the era of Kazan Napster, so it sounds strange coming from me that I'd be like, I'd rather pay it than do this workaround because. Hooking up my phone to the thing, selecting it, and then having uh, the histogram and the zebra functions not work right because it's not reading it right and stuff like that tells me. It's like, this is a pain. Okay, I never hook my phone up to my camera unless I specifically need a remote monitor or some other like situation where the camera's in a hard-to-reach place and I need to remote control it. To do this for every shoot because I want raw is just a pain in the butt. So uh, for you my, don't have to do it for every shoot, man. So uh, right now you could leave it there. Yeah. So I've got it in raw mode. I mean, or in uh, flat mode right now. And uh, I think I don't know if you guys can even read this. It says vlog at the top when you turn it on. But basically, mm-hmm. you just set it up to one of your presets here. So you go into your phone. Oh, you can program as yeah. A you go into your phone. You program it to one of the custom presets on the dial up here. You set it to that, and then when you go into video mode, it'll automatically switch over to vlog flat mode. And in the phone, all you do is Wi-Fi into your camera. You right. go to one of your custom presets, and you you set it to whatever you want, and you set it to vlog in this case. And then it's it's really simple. It takes like five minutes to do. I've got a link in the show notes to the firmware 2.3 you guys can download it and they have directions on reddit on how to do that as well uh really simple easy it's you know if you're not super worried about the histograms or the the zebra patterns being a little bit off then it's fine it's the barrier entry is so low just don't mess with it on that i have have not yet um, I just I installed it this morning, so I was playing around with it a little bit just to get a feel for it, and I'll probably grade a few things and post some stuff tonight or tomorrow. But honestly, it's it's really simple, and it's not very yeah. much of a hassle at all. So in that regard, I mean, using it, sure. this method, sure. I, it's I could like see people one using it. It's just one of those that the fact that I need to hook up my phone and there's a workaround, even if you can program it to a profile, and then you can pull up that profile whenever you want. It's one of those things that when it goes wrong on set, say my profile gets deleted or the camera acts funky and I want to do a factory reset on it or something like that, which has happened every once in a while when I'm running Magic Lantern firmware, not saying that Panasonic firmware is you know flaky, but uh, it's one of those kind of things where I'd rather have it known that it's just like, this is something I rely on to make money. And so... It's different if I'm a hobbyist and I'm out making short films with my friends, but when I've got a client who calls me up and pays me money to show up and get it right the first time... Pay $99. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it's like, it's like you know what? Build that into your next client, you know, or something like that. Like, figure out a way to make that work out for you uh, because workarounds, there's a, a time and place for workarounds and, like, yeah, if the only way to get the shot over the bed of, like, the monster 
eating the person is like by gaff taping a speed rail to a ceiling fan and attaching the camera to the speed rail, then you do it because that's what you need to do to make the shot work. But then there's other times where you're with a client and a client's not going to have much confidence if you've got a PVC like steady camera rig on your shoulders. So unfortunately, <laughs> like, you know, that, that that's part of it. So I'm saying there's a time and a place to mess around and do that stuff. And I love doing that stuff. That's part of filmmaking is being creative with how you solve problems. Uh, but then at the same time, when it's business and it's a corporation saying, I want you to do this, I need to show up, be there early and get done, you know, before the time limit and under budget. That's that's the goal. A lot of my business stuff, though, is there's no creativity to it <laughs> specifically. It's just, you know, formulaic. They see that you did uh, this talking head shot before. They liked it. They want you to do the same thing only for this guy. You know, they want mm -hmm. to deliver some sort of media message to the masses. You come in, you set up a couple of cameras, you stream it live for them in a conference room of some kind. The guys come up and fumble through their speeches and you're done. You know, it's not something that you're going to going to get to the point where you're like, oh, if only I could Dutch this and maybe <laughs> yeah. I could, you know, color correct this and turn it into something crazy, uh, you know, and there are times to do that. But generally, that's more on like short films, uh, feature length films, when you have the option to be creative uh, when you're working yeah. in a corporate environment. They don't want creative. They want the guy that just like churns out the same widget every single freaking time. Yeah. And they want that widget to be as affordable as possible. And if yep. you start getting wacky with it uh, and things don't go right, uh, you could inevitably lose that opportunity to make money. Now, <laughs> for me, I'm trying it out because it's free. I wasn't yeah. planning on buying the $99 vlog anyway. I'm going to mess around with it. I'll post some stuff on it, my opinions, my thoughts. But in general... <laughs> I don't really use flat style that much, so it's not that big a deal to me. Uh, Devin's made some really good points about why to shoot flat versus why not to shoot flat. And I think it's just like the raw versus JPEG arguments and, and in any of these other nitpicky arguments you can get into with filmmaking in general that, you know, it's a, it's a personal preference. Whatever you can get away with, whatever you can get done, as long as it works for you, it's probably okay. Now, absolutely. If you want to find out more about it, just swing over to the show notes and click on the link. You can download 2.3. You can get it installed. Real simple. And if until you don't Panasonic like it, calls you up and tells yeah. you to take it down, take down notice. I did <laughs> for save a limited time a copy of this to G Drive. So if it does disappear, uh, someone can shoot me an email and I can repost that somewhere anonymously that will uh, <laughs> get it back up again. Now, moving on down the line to something super cheesy here. Uh, we thought we were going to have a short show, but now it seems like we're going kind of long. Um, this thing right here, the GP1 Kickstarter project, is basically a rangefinder case for... <laughs> your GoPro Hero 4 Black Edition or Hero 4 Plus or White or whatever. But, I mean, look yep. at this thing, Devin. This is a little silly, right? This is absolutely silly. First off, I mean, you can't deny that, like, some small part of you thinks this is really cool looking. I know. When I saw uh, it, I was like, oh, whoa, this is cool. But then I'm like, wait a right? minute. DJ. And then you look at the price and you're like, what? Uh, two hundred forty or no? Oh, that's Australian, it so it's actually only Australian, so it's about one fifty. Yeah, one fifty. They use a dollar sign. That's not theirs. They can't use that. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Australian fans. Um, yeah, no, it looks super cool. And the first thing I actually thought about, even though they keep advertising it with the four black, because oh, that's the best camera ever. I think about the silver because the silver comes with the screen. Not that then, like you need a viewfinder, because part of it too is they're like. 
oh, the viewfinder, this is why you'd want to use it because your GoPro doesn't have a screen. And I'm thinking to myself, I just like it because it's a cool form factor, not because it gives me a rangefinder that's only going to work for like one angle on the GoPro. Because, you know, GoPro's got wide and narrow and medium or whatever. So the, the rangefinder to me is kind of useless, um, more or less, unless I'm going to shoot in that mode the entire time, which the more I've used my GoPro, the more I start staying away from wide mode, uh, just learning how to frame it and stuff like that. You'll get... M- better images you'll get videos that don't look like they're gopro videos which i think is the whole point unless you're making a gopro commercial but even when you watch like the gopro commercial half of that doesn't even look like a gopro and that's because they're using narrow mode they're using medium mode they're stretching in weird ways and stuff like that there's a lot of behind the scenes i don't have any of that laid up because i wasn't prepared to talk about gopro commercials but there's a few people who shoot those commercials who talk about what they do with the camera to make it look the way they do and most of the time they're talking about we shoot narrow or you know maybe we shoot medium we crop in a little bit um, and so that way it doesn't get that wide fisheye look and they'll defish it when they want to go wide and stuff like that. So it doesn't look like a GoPro. Um, and so anyways, but back to this thing, I like the way it looks. I'm not going to spend 150 on it. This is something I'd spend 25 bucks from, you know, from, uh, you know, something overseas that some company put together being like, Hey, look, you can add a strap to your GoPro. I like that. It adds a tripod mount. Yeah, um, you know, having the quarter 20 thread on the bottom is nice. Having a cold shoe on the top, uh, the aluminum buttons and the fact that they've stretched yeah. leather over the top of the case, it is fairly classy. I'm looking at this, and I'm not completely appalled by it. And they do mention in the in the video that uh, this is great for skateboarders and stuff who want to just sort of attach their camera on a camera strap and carry it with them, which sure. that is true. Like, the form factor of a GoPro is so small that a lot of times you end up strapping it to something because well, handheld it, isn't really that convenient for yeah, you. Yeah, so. you, add, you add the case to it, and then you'll add like a handle or something. And now just you're talking because, me into buying this. You're right. No, just, just because there's nowhere to grip a GoPro if that's all you're really shooting with, which I've done lots of. I've uploaded a few videos of like me and my buddies just going on road trips and vacations and stuff. And I'm usually just holding the GoPro. And that's why I'm like attaching a naked case. I'm attaching a handle or something like that because there's no easy way to carry it around with you. Or I'm using a chest strap or something because, you know, and I think that's why the poles got so popular because there's really no way to just hold it and like take pictures and shoot video and stuff like that. And this kind of provides that. That's why I was thinking this with a silver, which has a built-in screen, you keep that super small form factor but you can also see what you're shooting too, because I think the rangefinder is rather useless. But once again, not for the price. Um, part of it too is that I don't really care that it's got leather. I mean, like, don't get me wrong, that's a nice premium feature, but I would take this entire setup for $25 if they didn't put any glass in front of the GoPro and if they didn't use leather. You know, like, those two things are important to me. I care more about the function of it and the overall look. I like the, you know, retro, classic, silver on black kind of look they got going on. It's just one of those where I'm like, I don't need, you know, because I'm sure, too, they're probably using a, a really nice piece of glass on the front, too, to try to maintain the clarity of the GoPro and stuff like that. And yeah, I appreciate and they that do have uh, threads on there, too, so you can change out right. uh, filters and stuff. Also, I'm wondering what keeps the GoPro in place, because if you look here, it's just an open black space. And you're absolutely right. Having the screen on the back would be uh, nice. Right? But uh, what it, are they it, it's using? It's like running around with your uh, your what LMX 100, whatever you got. Yeah, or, LX 100. Uh, only this thing is way nicer. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the the point I'm getting at is I don't know how they're securing the GoPro exactly. No, here, neither do I. I. They any haven't discussed that. Threads or anything that. like that. So uh, that I part is kind of interesting. Friction. 
Yeah, if that's the case, that is a little shifty. Uh, but, you know, I look at that, and then I look at my, you know, hipster handle on this thing. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, look if you look on eBay right now, the LX100, you can buy this camera body for around uh, 600 500 bucks. I paid 475 for mine and I got a good deal. You know, that's not always going to be the case, but still, 5 or 600 dollars. So you can buy a Hero 4 Black edition for 499, which is 500 bucks. You buy this mm-hmm. case for another 150 and you're basically to an LX100 which shoots 4K, you know, has regular photo features. It's not an action cam, but the trap that people fall into and I see this happen all the time is they're like I want to buy a GoPro. And you're like, well, why? Because I'm going to do extreme stuff. Well, yeah, you say yeah. you're going to do extreme you say stuff. That. But office guy number 27 is not going to run out tomorrow and start jumping off of cliffs and freebasing and stuff like that with, you know, just because you got a GoPro. They're selling yeah. more of a lifestyle than they're selling a film tool. I mean, that is, don't that's get part me of their wrong. marketing. It's You're totally right. It's a film tool, but a lot of people don't look at it from that perspective because they just want to buy a camera and they feel like they're going to film the best thing in their lives and the, their world's going to be more exciting. Then they get it home. They have like a 45 minute to an hour battery life. They can only record a little bit of time at 4K and they're like, well, mm-hmm. everything's ultra wide. And then they're, they just kind of goes into a bag and gets set there and it never gets used again. If you have a tool like this, now you have different focal length options. You have different uh, filmmaking features. You have the ability to take nice big stills. And it basically functions as a full-fledged system, whereas you're making compromises because the GoPros are designed to go into tiny cases and go in the water and be mounted on stuff. And if you're going to do the extreme things, then a GoPro or one of the other competitors is the way to go. But if you're just getting it to like skateboard around and film stuff, you might be better served with something right. like this, you know what I mean? Because that that still goes wide. It's not like you know you can't yeah. and twenty four wide, wide versus like what's the a native equivalent for the widest angle on a GoPro? Oh, Isn't it like sixteen or fourteen something like that? It's like I don't know because they measure in degrees. Yeah, I can't. So I, I can tell you off the top is. of my head, but it's very extreme. And that angle, as Devin mentioned, is only useful some of the time. Uh, you can't yeah. just shoot everything that wide and expect it to look good. Now, if it's first-person perspective, that's cool, and there's a few other things where that works. But this is at 24 to 75. So at 24, that's pretty darn wide for most things. Uh, that's Absolutely. wide enough to, to film with without getting the really wacky distortion. And you can still get close-up shots with that and get that sort of like fill an entire frame okay. with a head the, sort of thing. Apparently the wide is supposed to be a field of view equivalent of 14 millimeters. Okay, and the yeah, medium so was... is supposed to be 21 and the narrow is supposed to be 28. Yeah, and I use mine in medium most of the time just to eliminate that uh, sort of hideous yeah. fisheye. Speaking... But... And you know, speaking of 150 bucks, this is a little sidetrack, but there's another action camera called uh, Axiom Yi or something. It's oh yeah, uh, the cheap GoPro knockoff, the one that looks right. really similar to a GoPro. Right. It's like eighty dollars. It won't fit in any of your GoPro cases or anything like that. But this thing is eighty dollars. Uh, sure, it doesn't shoot 4K, but. I've been reviewing footage off of this thing for the past couple of days because I've been really interested in the price point because people started talking about it. And this thing looks better than the Hero 4 Session. I mean, it, it's not like natively waterproof like the Session or anything else, but the Session is generally like better than, uh, you know, anything from Hero 2. I think like the Hero 3 Silver uh, is probably kind of on par with how good the Session looks. And this thing for 80 bucks looks better than that. 
So it's it's one of those where as much as I like GoPro stuff, it's got a lot of stuff in it too. It's got a degrainer that's built in. Uh, it uses CPU. It slightly softens the image, but it actually works really well in low light. You don't have a lot of grain like you do with GoPro. And it's got, um, it actually de-stretches when you go wide. You can put it in a mode where it'll try to remove some of the bubble fish. There, there's still a little bit of stretch to it. It's not, you know, perfect like you do in post-production, but it'll actually do it in camera. So when you pull the footage out, it's already mostly where you want it to be. So it's one of those that I was really fascinated looking at a lot of the footage. I'm not sure if I would drop the money on it yet because I already own two GoPros. I'm not sure if I need a third wannabe GoPro. Um... But uh, it looks way better than that GoPro Hero for 150, uh, and it actually looks a little bit better than the Session, which you know they just came out with for I think 400, 350, something like that. Yeah. So you know, in terms of is all you care about is the quality of the camera, this may be uh, something to consider because this guy is cheaper than the case for your GoPro Hero 4 <laughs> if you decide <laughs> to get a uh, GP1. So yeah. Eight, uh, 80 bucks or 70 bucks in the case of the link I had here and as low as $64. Uh, man, that is really cheap. And when you, when you look at the clips, it's like, no, it's not a hero Four black, but like this could substitute as all, like if you're like, Oh, maybe I'll get some silvers to run as like secondary cameras for it or something like that. It, I'm telling you, it looks way better or than a lot of the GoPro footage I see out there. And especially the denoising is impressive. It does soften the image. It's not as sharp as the other GoPros in low light. But then when you look at the image overall, because it's already been denoised, it looks way more pleasing because you don't see dancing grain all over the place. So that's uh, that's that's something to consider. Um, it's, all right, it's I've definitely added that one of those... to the show notes. So those of you looking for that crazy boondoggle we just dive or yeah. dove off into. Now, uh, this is actually a little cooler and something we should probably make sure we squeeze in before we into the show. Devin, the Ursa Mini uh, looks like yes. they've kind of locked in a date for actual release, sent out some test <laughs> models. A few people have been getting to play around with this. I've got yes. a list of things I saw that looked good and bad, but first, man, mm-hmm. what do you think? Uh, are these things going they, to excite are, you? Are, are you saying are they going to hit the date? I feel like you're just setting I'm, me up. Yeah, for, yeah, I'm setting you up for failure hit here. The date? As far back as I can remember... I don't think they've hit the date once on any camera product. Uh, I think for their shuttles they have, like their hyper shuttles, their rack mount gear, their conversion boxes, I think those have all come out when they've told that they've come out. But as for anything that actually has a lens on it that shoots, I don't even think their studio cameras, their HD and 4K studio cams even came out when they said they would. So I'm going <laughs> to assume that these probably won't. I could be wrong about that. Their studio cams may have actually come out on time, but we all know for sure the Black Magic. The original 2.5K, the 4K Super 35 sensor uh, with the global shutter. None of those guys came out on time. So uh, I'm going to say probably Christmas next year. Ah, maybe. <laughs> it's got maybe. some good stuff in it. So on the positive oh, yeah. side, um, I didn't know that you could actually switch between global shutter and rolling shutter, which is a really yeah. nice, interesting feature. Uh, both of them have their pluses and minuses, and be to be able to switch between those two is pretty handy. Uh, it's I'm pretty also... sure this guy's using the same sensor that they threw into the 4K uh, cinema camera they had before. Uh, I yeah. think they're recycling that sensor because that sensor was also a Super 35 uh, that did a global as well as rolling shutter, depending on if you want the dynamic range or um, you know the, the motion control. And um, 
as well, too, that one was shooting at 4K resolution, similar bit rates and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they just are dumping the same sensor in this guy as well, putting in a different form factor that hopefully will get more people to buy it because I don't think their 4K cinema camera took off the same way they probably wanted it to. That thing was a monster, man. It's huge. It's ginormous. Well, and, and that's the thing is they were just looking at the price. They're like, but look at how good the price is. And they weren't wrong. It was a really good price. But their firmware has never been totally polished like other camera manufacturers have been. I mean, unless you're maybe comparing it to RED, because I've heard horror stories. I haven't had one, but I've heard horror stories of RED cameras. RED's Um, gotten a lot better over the years. The RED 1 was plagued with issues throughout its infancy, but uh, towards the end of that particular product line and into the next uh, sensor you know, whatever they call it. I right. can't even remember now. But when they stepped it up to the next level, uh, it, it, they, they've been doing a really good job, and it's basically stabilized. Blackmagic, on the other hand, uh, right. a lot of times it's, it's they'll be like, well, been... we're going to get this camera out there, whether it's done or not. Here but you they, go, they guys. Have, they have added features after the cameras come out. They've upgraded firmware. Um, I mean, they always sold the pocket cameras having raw, and then they shipped it without raw, which is a negative, not a positive. But then they added focus peaking to the pocket camera and stuff like that. So it's good to see them adding features. And Did they ever get the on-screen audio level meters added to the yeah. pocket camera? Yep. Matter Finally. Fact, let, me, let me check right. Yeah, yeah. What Was it... Uh, because they were uh, missing I'm when it sure. was first announced, and I was like, "That's a glaring problem." That is a glaring guys. issue. Like, you know, you, yeah, meters. You yeah. advertise this as being able to record audio, but if you can't so, see levels, I, I don't know if you can necessarily see that. But there's the histogram, and then you can see the levels bounce as I hold it. So yeah, they actually added meters at the bottom that roll, you know, as you're recording, as well as a live histogram that a lot of people ask for. So, so yeah, they have been adding features to, you know, probably their cheapest camera, and I think as well as the other cameras too. They had a few. Um, uh, things that they've added to that as well, though I haven't owned this camera, so I haven't followed them as closely. But uh, I think what they've learned, the point I was trying to get to, is that um, while they had a really cheap cinema camera, they didn't yeah. have the form factor that people were really looking for, the features. So people wanted a, civil, uh, a swivel screen. You know, they had a lock screen. That wasn't good. Um, people want, you know, uh, XLR inputs, you know, ability for XLR power, 4-pin XLR power, whatever you call that power jack. Um, people wanted, you know other mounting options and uh, all that kind of stuff. And they wanted physical buttons and physical dials and stuff like that. And this looks like they've taken that same camera almost and then shoved it into a smaller package, made it shoulderable and like basically said, okay, we're giving it the way you want. You want like also to the built-in uh, mount on the back for doing V or gold mount. That's huge. You know, I mean, a lot, some guys swear by, you know, the red batteries and some guys swear by other batteries, but the, they added all of these features around the camera the only downside is probably the um, you know compact flash. I'm sure people would have preferred the S- SSD because well, and I CF, think that was one of the best features. Uh, the CFast cards, which are just compact flash, the next generation that are, are faster, are super expensive, expensive right now. We're talking super expensive. Yeah, they're like in the range. Remember when the P2 cards came out? Uh, for Panasonic, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, you know, six or seven hundred bucks for a, a. People still don't buy P2s. Yeah, those are P2s stupid, are still ex- stupid expensive. People rent P2s still because they still cost way too much money, and at this point, they should be dirt cheap because nobody wants them. Now, but going into your other negatives, yeah, base ISO a four hundred, yeah, low light performance isn't going to be fantastic. Uh, pocket or the Blackmagic cameras have never touted around as being special in low light. Um, I think, too, they don't see a point in it. Uh, for a lot of video production, as much as everyone keeps going on low light and it's really good for documentary purposes, I still think that this is better low light than what it's trying to replace half the time, which is supposed to be like a documentary camera. It's supposed to... Because 
for it to go up against something like a red or something like it's not like reds have amazing low light or anything like that too i mean like they, they got really good low light i'm not saying like it's not a good camera you can't use in that way but when i whenever i see somebody pull out a red on a shoot it's like on a soundstage with a bazillion lights and like, you know, some idiot who lights the whole thing with a bazillion China balls because he doesn't know how to create shadows. So it's always one of those things where there's a ton of light all over the place. And uh, and it, it's one of those where the red never has to hunt for light. And I think they see in a cinema use, this thing shouldn't have to hunt for light because you'll have a lighting guy. And I think that they're like, ah, if the low light could be just good enough that you can kind of take it out into the field and use it for documentary purposes and use auxiliary lights, LED lights hanging around, it's good enough. Um, now, you know, my it, question is, though, the Ursa Minor, or Ursa Minor, uh, <laughs> the Ursa, the Ursa Minor. Mini, not the planet, <laughs> but the, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, the, my, my question is, I guess, is, Sony's going to have the uh, FS5 out, and they've already dropped the price down. It looks like we're looking at $5,599, so $5,600. Uh, the mm-hmm. version of the Ursa Mini that shoots 4K is what, like four grand? Uh, No, I it, think it's five. Five grand? So, you know, this camera's coming right away. That camera's down the road sometime. True. Uh, this guy is rocking 4K internal recording. It allows you to shoot high frame rates up to 240 and FPS. Probably uh, impressive low light. Yeah, very good low light performance. Very adaptable to lenses, which I, arguably the Ursa Mini will have the same bit. But the camera you can get now versus the camera you may get at some point in the future. As always. Uh, as, you know, are the, are they losing their traction? Because it feels to me like... Uh, Black Magic was ahead of the curve at first, but now these other manufacturers mm-hmm. are like, "Well, we could do that." I mean, and we can do it with existing tech that we already have. So, uh, you know, we don't have to worry about software issues. We don't have to worry about you know uh, compatibility and other problems that we run into. Uh, Sony makes the sure. sensors as well. Uh, I don't know. Sure. Well, okay, okay. To put it this way, if you get an EF mount of a 4K, you're gonna spend three grand. So it's still. You know, it's still considerable. I mean, you're going to upgrade, put plates on it and all kinds of stuff uh, for battery power. Because that's one of those things is like the Ursa Mini doesn't come with batteries. The Sony does. And not just like, oh, here's a battery pack. I mean, uh, the Sony comes with a mount and a power system so that you can use Sony batteries to plug into it. Blackmagic doesn't have its own battery system, which is probably for the best. But the Ursa Mini, you're going to have to buy a backplate. And then you're going to have to buy a battery for that, whether you're V-mount, gold-mount, or you adapt it to use Sony batteries. So, so now you're adding up to like five or $600 right, depending on which battery cost. system you go with. You're starting to add cost to it and everything else. Uh, but I will say uh, Blackmagic is in a slightly different market because once again, like, uh, you know, just real quick, I'll hash what we said last time about the Ursa Mini. Uh, them adding that B4 mount for controlling lenses and the option built into its firmware to use a smaller lens system, because ENG lenses, two-thirds, usually won't cover the full 35 millimeter um, or Super 35. Uh, since they're building that in, they're like being like, this little camera here can be a stepping stone. I mean, now, t- you'd have to get the PL version, which is 3500 for 4K, unless you want 4.6K, then it's like 5.5, but... Um, <laughs> But it's one of those things where I see something where they're like, we'll adapt and we'll fit whatever you've got. 
The Sony will adapt lenses, but that's about it. It's so not you're thinking to... really the Ursa Mini once it's actually released will be a better option for you know uh, studios and location stuff that's permanently affixed that can be upgraded as they move forward. So like in yeah. a newsroom, for example, you could set up four or five of these, and then you have a clear upgrade path for the next like five or ten years, and that way right. you can devalue the cost of your cameras over that time as opposed to immediately going out and purchasing new packages for. For all of your studio settings, right? Is that, right. that kind of what I'm yeah, getting out of this? I, I'm kind of saying, yeah, they're building this so that right now, well, not right now, whenever it comes out next year, it'll <laughs> instantly it'll instantly be able to jump into your workflow. They don't give you a battery option because they imagine you're going to use your gold mount or your V mount, depending on you know what news organization you work for, or what part of the world you're in. Um, so they, they go, we know you aren't going to use whatever we end up giving you. So we're just going to let you put your own plate on. We're going to keep it small. We're going to let you put your B4 lenses on and have our sensor be able to properly use those, which I'm sure, you know, you could probably do some of this stuff with the Sony, but there'll be workarounds. Uh, I think that the Sony generally looks like a really great, like one man band or even I shoot weddings or documentary purposes and stuff like that. This thing is really just a body. You think of it like a DSLR. It's like just a body. You need to spend a lot more if you want it to work in a workflow. But if you run a studio or something like that, you've already got all the pieces you need to put on it, you know, lying around the workshop. So um, I think it definitely, it, it depends on where you're going at with that because like while they offer a shoulder mount and everything else for that kind of stuff, uh, there's just quarter 20s all over the place. You can put cheese plates on, you can mount this however you need to and do everything else with it. So... In a way, it's kind of like the exact opposite of what a C300 is or a C500 where they have all their own bits and pieces and you need to use their own bits and pieces. This is built so you don't need an EVF because this is studio use. Don't buy the EVF. Hey, you want an EVF? You can hook up your own or you can buy one of ours. So uh, I, I think it's generally built as just a body and you're going to spend more putting it all together where the Sony is a complete package and you're going to do it with Sony batteries and Sony lenses or some adapters or something like that. So, and the fact too that it's an EF mount, meaning it'll electronically run all of your stuff, or you get the PL mount, which you can remove and put a B4 mount on, or PL, you know, will adapt to basically any kind of yeah. cinema glass. So, so it's just, it, it, there's really very little in a camera here. Like, you're really just paying for a sensor and the software, and they're working hard to make the sensor and the software work. Uh, but out of the box, you're not going to pull it out and start filming with it unless you buy all the other pieces to it. So, uh, you know, it's it's just, I think they're really in different directions, and even if you're looking to buy a camera, I'm not even sure you would consider both of these side by side and go, well, which one of these should I pick? Because nah, I really think they're targeted the towards two different people. The FS5 is so attractive. I mean, every time I look at it, I like hover <laughs> right? over the buy button just because it's, <sighs> it's got so much good going for it, and the price is, is so but nice. DJ, it's not a DSLR. You're not allowed to have it. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, well, I mean, come on, DSLR film noob who also shoots on. Uh, let's see, this is a mirrorless. Uh oh, not a DSLR. I've got my nope, GH4 over here. Not a DSLR, but I mean, you know, anymore, what you film with is is arbitrary mm -hmm. to what the final product is. So, right. While I hover over these things, I don't invest in them because I already have a whole bunch of cameras that make me money and I'm yeah. good with. So. Until that doesn't work anymore, then I'll have to start upgrading and buying. And by then, maybe the F FS5 will be down to $4,000, and uh, right. then it'll be a little less expensive. Now, we've got to beat that one into the ground. Oh, yeah, we have. Two For more the second things. time now. Jeez. Yeah. Two more things on the list here. Devin, you wanted to talk about the lunchbox, but before we do that, let's discuss this uh, 25 millimeter F0.95 lens from Medicon. Uh, basically... 
they are coming out with a $399 uh 25 millimeter, which is about 50 millimeter equivalent on a GH4 or Micro Four Thirds body lens mm-hmm. at a price that's lower than both SLR Magic and Voigtlander. Now, I've got my Voigtlander right here, which is a heavy monster trucker. This guy, yep. very well built, except for, I've always complained about this, it's got a little bit of uh, shifting in the base when you're mm-hmm. pulling focus. You've got your SLR Magic. You want to show that yeah, off Yeah, I mean, the, the SLR Magic here that I have on um, a pocket cinema camera, because, uh, you know, 20, 25 turns into a 75. It's basically portrait with this kind of a lens on it, but... For an interview shoot, it's a great second camera. The um, this thing I've really enjoyed. I did. I, I couldn't tell you how many times I rewatched um, review videos that went between the SLR Magic and the Voigtlander, because when the Voigtlander came out, I think I got a pre-order price of maybe around five fifty or six hundred. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and then it went up in price, and then it started dropping in price. But understand, at this point, there was maybe like three review videos online. I don't think anyone had confidence to pre-order from a company called SLR Magic uh, something that you know was that expensive. So, uh, but I actually pre-ordered months in advance, uh, which was sketchy to do, especially for a company that I haven't worked with or uh, bought, used their products before. I've absolutely loved it. Um, SLR Magic, just like Voigtlander, on their lower end lenses, have had problems of. I don't even know, know what you call it, slop in the focus ring. Uh, so returning to focus has always been difficult, but I've never had that problem on my 25. I've heard maybe one or two other people said they had a problem with their 25. So quality control is an issue, uh, like I hear it is possibly for the Voigtlander as well, because I think these are all handmade lenses. These aren't like on an assembly machine line or something yeah, like that. Mine is perfectly fine when you're focusing forward or you're it's focusing when you go back, backward. but it's oh. when you transition from forward to backwards that you get just uh, a little bit of slop. And I it's see. it's not the end of the world. Like, as long as you plan around it, it's okay. No, but it's just... mine's perfect. And the reason why I went with mine was not just because I knew it was going to be perfect, but and because... And it's cheaper. Um, and, and it's cheaper. But it actually was slightly brighter. Um, it had, I would say it had a little bit more flaring uh, because it is so open and so wide. I think in the flare test, it, it flared more than the Voigtlander did. But... Uh, I knew that if I stopped it down to 1.4, almost all that flaring goes away. It was slightly well, brighter. Well, the SLR Magic is a T yeah. 0.95. This is an F 0.95. So, I mean, you do get a little bit more light out of it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it, and like you'd imagine, T's tend to run a little bit brighter because you're talking about actual measurements and not theoretical. Um, but the uh, also, it was slightly warmer. Uh, and by what I mean by slightly warmer is not even that it was warm. It was just probably a little bit over neutral where the Voigtlander I felt was like really far into cold as well as a bit of green in there too, uh, which it, I mean, it's a lens. It's not like it's coating everything like a filter, but it just, it was enough that it kind of irked me in a weird way. And I love the fact that the SLR magic came with uh, uh, gearing on it because I was planning to use it with a follow focus filmmaking and all that kind of stuff. So I have that option. So I love the fact that it was pre-geared. And I didn't need to do anything fancy for that part, um, as well as being cheaper, as well as being brighter. Um, it, it may not be as sharp at like 1.2 as the Voigtlander was, but I really couldn't tell difference unless you had a test chart. And so by my words, I was like, nah, that's good enough for me. So that's something to consider. I haven't seen anything back to the point of this uh, uh, Miticon, but um, I imagine it's probably looks just as good as like the SLR magic or the Voigtlander. I mean, they're all really close. Part of me was price, but 
I, I just explained the few things that I thought were a little Minicon's bit better. been releasing a ton of lenses with extremely wide apertures. You know, they have a Sony lens that's capable of 0.95 on full frame. Uh, they've got this guy now. And the story on those, I think they were a little soft in the corners. But, you know, when you, you're shooting at 0.95, all these lenses are going to be a bit soft in the corners. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, even my oh, Voigtlander, that's just the nature of the beast. Once you get to... That's the physics. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's light physics. That's how it works. You know, you're just going to be a little bit softer in the corners, and you're going to have some fall off and what have you. But it's beautiful. And when you need shallow depth of field in a Blackmagic pocket camera like Devin's using there or my GH4... Mm-hmm. You, you really do need something like this around in your collection for that sort of thing. And three ninety nine. I mean, well, I do love my Voigtlander, and I paid substantially right. for it, and Devin loves his SLR Magic. Three ninety nine's into the attractive range where, you know, anybody can really go out and get well, one, and, and it's not going to extremely impact your budget. There's, there's two things about this I want to mention is, one, uh, they are saying the lightest, which they're right, because mine is all steel. It triples the weight of my Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera. Really? Which says a lot. Yes, it is just as heavy as your Voigtlander. I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, ounce for ounce, I'm pretty sure both the Voigtlander and the SLR Magic are probably the same. It's super heavy. Uh, it's made, you know, out of, it's like aluminum, but oh my gosh, there's so much glass in it. Uh, so this guy's made out of what looks like plastic to me. He doesn't have any gearing, but he is a lot shorter. And um, and I think part of it, too, is that they use less elements, hence why it looks like his front element actually moves forward and retreats as you focus, as uh, some of yeah. your like, cheaper Canon lenses do. So less elements, I don't know if that means it's going to not just be soft in the corners, but it's also going to be uh, fish-eyed or bowed because it doesn't, it'll probably have less corrective elements in it. But lightness is something to consider, especially if you want to fly something like this on a drone or something like that, or you're just really big into traveling light. Um, one thing that kind of puts me off, and I know this sounds weird, but it being in a fancy leather box, um, <laughs> I, I know that's weird, right? Right? Because you're like, why would that bother you? It's just a box. Throw it out. Um, Give me a the bag. Fact, the fact that this is the cheapest in its category, but then it has the fanciest packaging just seems a little sketchy to me because I've seen a lot of companies who do that to try to make their cheaper products look more premium when instead of spending that money on quality control, if that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, a great example, actually. Uh, remember when those uh, USB controllers were all the rage for controlling focus on your Canon cameras? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Oka, That's right. Okai, uh, <laughs> I think it was Okai, O-K-A-I, they made mm-hmm. a version that was machined out of solid piece of a block aluminum, really well built and everything, and it was just in a tin can, like nothing fancy. Then right. Aperture made one that, uh, I mean, they both did the same thing because the electronics were the, the same on the inside, but Aperture made one that was all plastic with some shiny bits of, like, uh, you know, foiled plastic on there, and then they put it in this beautiful leather case that opened up and was really nice, form-fitting <laughs> and everything, yep. and you get it out, and it's, you know, it's not as well built as the Akai unit, so... And I'm not, this isn't a dig on Aperture. They were a pretty young company when that came out. And I think that was one of the first things they started releasing. But And they wanted to come out with a good image, a good brand. Yeah, so exactly. And so they kind of, they got you in the door with this cool leather case. And then when you got it, you're like, well, I could have bought the nicer one for $100 more, but it wouldn't have come in this leather case. So there's probably something to that. But yeah, I don't know. I I wouldn't mind a plastic version of no, my... No, and I wouldn't either. Um, you know, I, I I would love to do some side-by-side with it. Uh, for one thing, real quick, can you tell me how many degrees your focus wheel turns on the Voigtlander? 
Okay, ready? You can actually watch this here. So this has a ton of throw. It's like, I would say, more than 360. Oh, really? Yeah, like, I okay. mean, turning, 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 turning. Uh, no, yeah, I would say it's over 180. Let me let me rephrase right, that okay. and say over and so, 180. And just, just for comparison, too, because um, the SLR Magic, because it is built for gearing as well, and that's kind of impressive that the Voigtlander will spin that far. Um, this guy does 180 degrees, which is a pretty long throw uh, for a 25 millimeter lens. So, I mean, that's part of it too, depending on your purposes and filmmaking and stuff like that, is that this guy here, I wonder how long his throw is. Like like we've discussed before, that's a deal killer for sometimes when I'm thinking about, am I going to use this for filmmaking or something like that with the follow focus? Because the follow focus isn't going to help if your lens only spins, you know, 90 degrees. Yeah, because I, it's a I actually want to correct myself here because I'm a dum-dum. Uh, if you look right here, you can see this is the only point in the lens that doesn't turn. So you're going almost 360. I, I yeah. thought it was 360, but it's more like uh, 295-ish, you know, roughly. So you're going <laughs> almost all the way around. But tons yeah. and tons of throw. And you're absolutely right, Devin, for actually what you want to do with a lens like this is pull focus on something. And having yeah. that much throw, it's beautiful to hit your mark because now even with uh, hand focusing without uh, a, uh, a follow focus, you can you can sit there and kind of do this and get to the point because you have so much resolution to work with. It's yeah. really nice. And even, even if you don't, even if there's a little bit of slop in your focus wheel like he has... If you put some gears on there and you put a follow focus on there, just having all that range is going to make it incredibly easy to pick stuff up. Um, this coming from the guy who uh, uh, shot a web series on a, you know, a Canon 12 to 55 millimeter plastic lens that they ship with the T2i. Ooh. Trying to pull focus on that thing, on the little front element piece of plastic that maybe moves 30 degrees. Yeah, that's near impossible to pull focus during a live shot. So you come to appreciate these things after you suffer for a bit. Yeah, that, man, pulling focus on something like that, I mean, you might as well just give up and, and go yep. take the lens out and shoot it. Oh, that's awful. Um, okay, last thing here, let me see, lunchbox. Okay, Devin, I've already what? got you going long enough. Did you still want to talk about the lunchbox, or do you want to save this yeah, for... Well, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll just, real quick, um, as you can see here, first off, I'm probably going to scare people because there's no cover on my... GH3. People are like, oh no, you're gonna break it. You're just going um, free free flow. I mean, like, wh why don't you have a lens cap on that? Uh, just because I pulled the lens off real quick to show everyone the 25 millimeter, because that's what I had on it. So, uh, so anyways, so right now I'm messing with it, trying to hook it all together. It's still a big mess because I'm still wiring stuff, but uh, I'm working on the EVF being powered off of the battery itself, uh, the camera as well. Uh, you know, that it comes powered off of this guy. And then, um, of course, the mic is using phantom power. So I already did a primary test of just running oops, just running um, the EVF and a GH4 recording with a phantom-powered shotgun microphone. And then these batteries, which sell 50 to 150, they're special. They're not the MPs like you think because they need to be 14 or 12 volts. Yeah, 14.4 volts. So, they okay, aren't like so they're like volt. the NP950s then? Yeah, the MP950. Okay. Um, then whatever the other ones I was thinking of. Uh, these guys are more expensive, but this one guy lasted my EVF, Phantom Power, and the GH3 recording for about six hours, wow. maybe five. So you get a lot out of just this. And this isn't even like I've got a gold mount on here yet or anything like What's that. What's the MHA rating on that guy? Uh, about 8,000, 7,950. Okay, that explains it. Yeah, that's a, yep. 
That's a that's, lot of capacity in. That's in, uh, 114 uh, watt hours. Dang. If you prefer it in that way. So. Yeah, uh, for those of you so, yeah. who aren't familiar with the measurement, uh, your little batteries that say uh, 1800 MWH, that's milliwatt hours. So that's mm-hmm. 1.8 watt hours. And Devin just held up a 14 point whatever watt hours. So that yeah. means it's uh, 14 times more capacity than, say, an LPE6 or LPE8. So it, it's uh, so they, they picked the right battery. That is, and that's the kind of battery that usually goes in an FS7 or something like that. And the reason why is because it'll last those cameras a long time. Um, part of the reason why they used it is because they wanted the 12 to 14 volt range. So that, for example, most EVFs, uh, if they have a jack to be powered externally, they'll run off of um, uh, they'll run off of anywhere from eight to 14 volts usually. Uh, and those jacks on the run and gun basically just provide whatever voltage you feed the system. But the preamp, the DSL, or the preamp, and like jacking into the voltage for your camera and everything else, it's all built around 14 volts, which is why they use it. And then if you switch over to gold mount, that stuff is all 14, 12 to 14 volts ish. And you'll be surprised how much of your electronics will automatically convert over. What I've actually done too, I don't have it in front of me. Um, I've disassembled a very cheap. Um, car usb power adapter that's like okay. 2.1 amp or whatever the reason being is because that is used to accepting anywhere from 12 to 14 volts because it's built for a car and i could get it for two bucks and that circuitry will take the 12 or 14 volts and bring it down to five and provide some amperage which then i can use to go ahead and put um my uh you know those road uh filmmaking kit and news thing that we talked about the road link is that what it's called road link? yeah the road link uh, that'll take the road link and provide the five volts it needs to power up. Because that's part of a weird thing. As much as it's like, oh, it's cool because I can use my phone charger to power this, not using 12 or 14 volts is weird in a professional broadcast environment. But like I said, I bought that little guy for two bucks, disassembled him so I can wire him up to 14 volts and he'll pump out five and be able to power up that those systems. So Now, if you're looking for something off the shelf here, let me present... Oh. I just, whoa, wrong button. (laughs) Let me uh, show you this real quick, guys. Uh, This is really handy to know about. If you go on eBay, uh, they sell voltage regulators that are pre-set up, ready to go. They have a nice little nub Mm -hmm. on either side so that you don't really have to do any work in designing these or tear them out of anything else. And they have ranges that are very wide. In this case, this one's capable of outputting between 1.25 volts and 37 volts, and it can accept sources anywhere between 4 volts and 40 volts with a 3-amp mm-hmm. max output. And there's a current regulator on there, too, so you can control all that. And they're 492. So, I mean, it's you can buy a handful cheap. of these. If you're trying to build some kind of voltage-regulating application to attempt to hook one type of battery or one type of plate to some other thing, these are super cheap super easy to get and once you got them set you just dip them in epoxy and <laughs> they don't unset right. no, and then yep. they're waterproof and everything else and it's super handy and to have the only then the only reason why i didn't go with that is because it was three bucks cheaper just to get a car adapter because in this case i knew i needed just five volts yeah and i would have had to buy uh or chop off either an end of a usb cable which i actually don't have any when i searched around my house or buy, you know, a USB-N for me to solder on later, which would have been an extra dollar. So I just went, ah, I'll just use a car adapter because I know that'll basically do what I need it to do. But that is great. And I actually looked that up for a few other applications where possibly attaching some r- pieces of rig to it, LED lights and stuff like that, that don't give a wide range because they don't have a regulator in them, using something like that to regulate it so I can give them the proper voltage. 
Yeah, I showed up on a site one time and I was filming for a telecom company and they're like, we have this battery bank that we don't use anymore, but it's on chargers. Like, can you use that for something? Because they didn't have any electrical outlets there. And I was like, oh, well, uh, give me a couple hours and I can put something together and I'll, I'll be back. And I went down to a shop and this guy had a couple of these laying around. I bought them, hooked it up, <laughs> wired it up and everything, and then got it to power a bunch of LED lights that I needed to run in order to do mm-hmm. the shoot. So, I mean, kind of a wacky oddball yeah. thing but they're out but there if, and it's hey, super if, handy if electronics is kind of a hobby of yours along with filmmaking you really enjoy electronics there's there's a lot of marriage between those two things of uh uh you know power electricity getting things to work and stuff like that and especially making all one nice solution uh i've got to use this rng for a few shoots so i'll get some more working with it and trying it out and uh, probably add more to it and get a better idea of my overall thoughts of the whole thing but Part of my idea, like I'm saying, is using these regulators and stuff so I don't have a battery I have to worry about in charging for my EVF and a battery for an external uh, recorder and a battery for this and that. So the whole idea is bringing the entire kit down to one battery, and then I bring two of those, and I know that'll last me for 12 hours. That's kind of the idea. That's the reason why you would do something like this. And so knowing how you know basic electronics work and stuff like that, for me, personally, it's fun, but for... For filmmakers, it can be useful if you're trying to set up a rig like that, because imagine me trying to keep three different devices charged and, you know, swapping batteries out and everything else in the middle of a shoot. That kind of negates the whole point. It goes back to having some kind of jerry rig of an operation. It also gets you a little bit more money if you are capable of working on that sort of thing. So yeah, uh, just something to think about. uh, Extra skills you bring to the table are ways to get paid. I'm trying to talk Devin (laughs) into possibly posting everything that he's added to his lunchbox into an article on (laughs) DSLRFilmNoob.com. So if he decides to do that, which I would recommend you guys email him and just harass him and tell him to to get to work, (laughs) uh, he can uh, post that up and then you guys can have a list of all the items he's using to build that. Now, the last thing on our list before we get out of here, because now we went from running short to running long is the pick of the week. Devin, I've got you first, man. What do you got? Sure. Um, This may not be useful for a ton of people, but uh, I bought into this early on the pre-order. It's the, that is a fancy case, man. Wait a minute. Did you get sold on the case? That's what you get for the pre-order. They give you a a fancy felt. I don't know if it's cheap or what, but some fancy felt case. Um, I'm a, after using this for a while, I'm a huge fan of this. Uh, You're not going to exactly, broadcast off of it because it's just one sprint connection uh interesting fact uh, a lot of news organizations on lower budget news stories aren't using satellite trucks for live broadcast they actually use a backpack that's got eight or ten 4g modems that yeah i've seen those. Have all the major mess. carriers verizon t-mobile at&t and they actually split the video signal up across all of them and saturate those and then bring them back together so they can have an uncompressed 1080p copy coming into the studio that relatively usually only maybe has 300 to 80 milliseconds of lag depending on how good things are but so this guy isn't exactly going to do a live broadcast because it's only one sprint connection but uh the battery life on it is great i get probably about four hours maybe five hours it's got micro usb it's easy to charge you can charge as you use it and the signal on it's always been fantastic too and it provides a wi-fi network what's cool about it is that Whenever you have it on, it provides a free network for anyone to attach to. And if they sign up for an account, they get a free uh, 100 megabytes to use right then and there. So when I actually turn it on, it's an open Wi-Fi access point. And when you connect, there's a login page that says, hey, login or sign up and we'll give you a free 100 megabytes you can use right now. Uh, Every time somebody does that on my Wi-Fi point, 
I get 100 megabytes added to my account. Their prices are actually really good, and the real reason why I bought it, I mean, all that fluff stuff is nice, but the real reason I bought it is because uh, it's pay-as-you-go, and so unlike every other carrier out there that I've basically found, I can spend 100 bucks, get 10 gigabytes on this, and then that 10 gigabytes sits on there for however long. It never goes away. It never decays. It's always there and available. And I'm not in a situation where I use this every month. If you are, if you're like, oh, I need you know to use like five gigabytes of wireless data a month, then you just go to Verizon, you get a jetpack, and that's going to be the best deal. But if you're somebody who like in one month, you'll use a ton of gigabytes and then you won't touch it for three months, this works out great because that data will just sit there waiting for you. You don't have to pay for rollover. You don't have to pay any extra fees. What so. network is it on? It's Sprint. Oh, it's Sprint. So, you know, it's not only Verizon. for people who live in uh, major metropolitan areas, basically. Yeah. I mean, it will have it will fall back to 3G. The 4G on it's really nice and fast. Uh, and it is LTE because Sprint switched back or Sprint switched to LTE after the the WiMAX thing kind of started to flake out and stuff like that. <laughs> and WiMAX started closing its doors. Uh, you know, it was going to be the future. And, uh, and now here we are. But uh, I find that Sprint LTE coverage is actually pretty decent around the Midwest. And, of course, the 3G coverage is just about anywhere because whether it's T-Mobile, Sprint, or whoever, 3G coverage basically reaches everywhere. So I know I can at least get online no matter where I go. Um, but it's one of those that's really cool. I've already had a few people hit it while I've been out using it. So I've gotten a few, you know, 100 megabytes here, 100 megabytes there, which isn't bad. Um, but it's just – it's kind of a really – I really like the fact that it's like I can buy data in chunks and then just save it for later. And actually during the pre-order because they were so late with the pre-order. supposed to come out last December and I got it probably a month ago. Um, they, uh, they had three opportunities where they would double whatever data you bought. So at those times, those three times I actually bought, uh, I spent a hundred dollars to get 10 gigabytes of data and they gave me 20. Nice. So I've spent, and, and they had one right when it came out too. So I've probably spent $400 and I've got 80 gigabytes of data right now, uh, because they came out with a good deal like that. I don't know if they'll continue to throw out deals like that every once in a while. Uh, but just the fact that I know that now I've got over 80 gigabytes of data on this thing and it'll stay there. I can I can use 20 gigabytes in a month, and it doesn't matter. You know, I don't have to worry about overage fees or anything like that. And it'll also autofill up if you sign up for that or anything like that. But I've got a referral link. If you want to throw me an extra 100 megabytes, you can sign up with the link in the show notes. Or if you don't want, you still get a free 100 megabytes when you get it. The product itself, I think, goes for 100 maybe $150. To get the, I think the pre-order on it was 100 Now it's, I think, 150 to actually buy the device. But the company's super cool. I talk with them. They seem really on top of their stuff. They really care about their customers. They're big on personal service. But like I said, the deal works for me because I don't use data every month. If you do, Verizon, T-Mobile, one of those will be cheaper. Trust me. But if you're just going to buy it and then sit on it, it's better. To I'm one of the like people this. they describe as a whale. My cell phone here. Yeah. I've, I've actually got um, a screen capture of me going over 500 gig. <laughs> of data in a month on my cell phone uh, because I was that won't last forever. Plaza. Well, that won't last. Your unlimited won't last forever. It'll eventually the companies will screw you out of it. Trust me. So side I got story, out of mine. The Verizon plans, four uh, uh, G LTE. You get mm -hmm. you get sixteen up a lot of times, and sometimes you even get twenty up. Oh yeah, so, it's really good. I uh, love Verizon. Yeah, so the up speed is what I really take advantage of. A lot of times I'm like, well, I need to send this clip out fast and my landline is 10 up and you know, right. realistically I'm getting more like 6 to 7 up if I'm lucky. I plug right. this guy in, uh, upload the clip to my G drive or to the server or whatever, 
and it goes five to seven times faster being on the LTE network, which is ironic because it's a wireless network as opposed to a wired connection. But the up speeds are freaking amazing. So if you yes. need to get something up fast and it's, you know, a four or six gig file, something huge, uh, using your cell phone service is amazing for that. And that's where I beat the crud out of my network <laughs> connection with that. And, I'm and, actually- and I... I love Verizon too. I have Verizon as well. Um, I just I don't have a reason to pay for that much in monthly fees, knowing that I may not use all that data. Uh, but uh, from somebody who's been around at a lot of different locations, a lot of different shoots, Verizon literally ninety percent of the time I have four G service when yeah. I'm watching AT and T and Sprint guys suffer and don't have four G service. So uh, I'm I'm a big advocate of Verizon, even though crappy customer service and everything else. And I eventually got off my unlimited contract because they're they're coming for you. They they really are. Anyone who still has an unlimited contract, there are lawyers in a room working to get I you have, off of that contract. I was with a small <laughs> carrier in the Midwest called Altel, and Verizon mm-hmm. came in and bought them. And my contract is still the Altel contract from like 15 years ago. And that was when no one thought you'd use any data at all. And they gave out unlimited right. data, only 500 just minutes use of talk emails. time, and then yeah. unlimited text. And it's like, oh, sweet. So it's I've, it's perfect for me. I've held on to it all these years. I pay $89 a month, and I just beat the tar yeah, out of you're it. You're lucky. I used to have it, and then... Um, Someone as a part of my family plan wanted to upgrade their phone that was going to require re-signing. I knew that Verizon was on the march to try to get rid of as many unlimited people as possible. So I go, eventually this will go away. I'll just grow up and learn to live without it. So DJ still gets to hold on to it, but who knows for how long, because eventually something's going to happen. Either they're going to like add some kind of new fee or some new authentication, which will cause a re-sign of a contract and make it all go away. They're working hard on it, like I said. Yeah, I hope to hold on to it indefinitely. But my pick of the week here, and I've actually been talking about this off and on, is the Panasonic LX100. I, I know I have tons of very fancy cameras laying around my studio here. I mean, uh, I could reach over and grab any number of cameras. But this little guy right here, for the price, uh, again, used market around 600 bucks right now, it's... It's an amazing deal. 4K shooting internally, uh, the ability to do stills at a micro four-thirds level, the zoom range of 24 to 75 millimeter at f1.8 to f2.8. So you have basically a perfect walk-around zoom, and the form factor is really nice. Uh, With the setup that I'm writing right now, I should be up tomorrow or the next day, uh, that will walk you through getting this camera set up for perfect video shooting. And I've been cutting this in between the GH4 and the LX100, and you know you have them both in standard mode or in vivid mode or whatever. It cuts very well between the two in 4K. So definitely worth investing in. Really awesome sort of point-and-shoot camera for people looking to a low-budget vlog or whatever. Oh, I mean. yeah, definitely for vlogging. Well, and, and uh, does it have microphone input? It does not. That's the only re- – <laughs> well, there's two downsides. One, no microphone input, and two, they've disabled the HDMI output except for in playback mode. So ah. if you're looking to use this with an external monitor, uh, go somewhere else. Uh, you can use it but with as the a cell B-cam, phone app. Yeah. As well, a B-cam, you're saying it's fantastic for that because you don't need an external monitor for your B-cam anyways. Exactly, and you can run this with a cell phone. So if you do need an external monitor – you can Wi-Fi into it, and you have full control of it. Plus, you can see your image with only a slight delay. They've gotten really good with their uh, Wi-Fi controls for these cameras. So your video playback's enough to frame and to get things sorted out if you do need to have 
a off-camera monitor of some kind. And for bloggers, if, you, if you're basically setting this in front of you, you use a, let me see here, a Zoom H1 uh, to get your audio, sync it in post, and now you have 4K uh, blog posts that can go up on YouTube. and Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's super nice looking too. And then, you know, with the options you have and an actual lens that's adjustable, it's in the price range of a GoPro and really sexy. So that's my pick of the week. Devin, you got anything to add before we get out of here? No, we are way over. Holy We're way over cow, time. Way over. End the show now. End All right, now. on that note, guys, you can find me at dslrfilmnoob.com. Devin, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me to next week. <laughs> next week. All right. Uh, swing over to dslrfilmnoob.com. There's updates going up now. I've also got the podcast automated so that I don't have to post anymore because I am freaking lazy. Uh, also, uh, be aware that uh, I am going to be in traveling mode in October. So we may end up missing one or two shows during that time. Just a scheduling note for those of you out there who are expecting things on a regular basis. But check us out on iTunes. Check us out on SoundCloud. Talk to me at DSLR on Twitter or anywhere else you can find me on the internet. We will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob 